You are tuned to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio, HPR1. I'm Catherine Cruz. The Hawaii Tourism Authority is in a fight for its life, heading to the conference committees or two bills, one to create a new office of tourism under DBAD, the Department of Business, Economic Development and Tourism, and another to scrap HTA and its board. Not everyone is convinced having a state department in charge is the answer, given the political meddling we've seen of late. HTA held a news conference yesterday to underscore that the proposal could have unintended consequences, the loss of federal funds in any transition and the flexibility of HTA to fund cultural programs. One example that comes to mind is a grant that outgoing HDA head Chris Tatum made to Ilani Palace to help remove an infestation of bees and to help with repairs. That uh, highlighted a leaking roof, which was something that had not been made a priority with the administration or lawmakers. We talked to John DeFries, HDA head this morning, noting that yesterday's news conference had to be moved because of a leaky roof in the theater of the convention center. The image is that our collective house is not in order. DeFries talked with us this morning, choosing to focus on the gains HDA has made in tourism spending in light of reduced visitor numbers and on progress toward managing over tourism. So it's moving in the right direction on the economic side of it. The other aspect of it is we are into our destination management action plans on each of the islands, plans that were developed by people of that community, that respective community. And we're like entering our fourth year of a six-year strategic plan. That plan provides the framework, foundation, really our marching orders to make sure that we're not only an economic driver, but that we are being mindful of the impacts we're making on the natural environment, on Hawaiian culture, and really on the spirit of the community. And so the changes that are being proposed in both of those bills, for us, appears to be too drastic, too immediate, but we'll be the first to say that HDA should change. It's it's a model that was initiated 25 years ago. We've learned a lot been refined along the way. And that's why we favored a bill that was put forth and advocated by the University of Hawaii Economic Research Organization that recommended we do a tourism governance study throughout the world to look at different ways in which tourism is being managed to see if there's a system and a model out there that can be replicated or revised or certainly customized for our needs in Hawaii. But I want to emphasize the fact that I appreciate the openness and the dialogue that's currently going on with the leadership in both the House and the Senate. There were some lawmakers that thought we had a runaway train. The industry was just helping themselves and not really thinking about the people. And, you know, we watched the uh, hotel room tax money uh, you know, get taken away and uh, dished out among the counties. Now we're seeing, you know, more attempts to put the squeeze on HTA, you know, whether it's in the form of cutting your budget for this next year or throwing it out altogether. And you're saying not so fast. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater at this juncture. And worse yet, don't throw the baby out and keep the bathwater. Okay. You know, I don't know why we would do that. But I will say this, that last year in state KT, we generated just north of $830 million. That's a substantial um, budget that can be, should be reinvested into the natural environment, into the community, into advancing cultural programming, festivals, and events, right? That's a substantial amount of money that can help to solve problems, issues that have been raised by the community in terms of traffic congestion, 
parking, those kinds of things. So when we look at resident sentiment and the erosion of support for the industry, if you drill down deeper, what you find is that it's not the 9.2 million visitors that came, it's the one visitor that parked in front of my driveway and I can't get out. Or it's the overloaded parking at my favorite beach park, right? It's those areas that need to be better managed. We have the funding to do it that's being generated by TAT. And I believe that there's a growing understanding and support at the legislature that that's really why TAT was created was to reinvest it into the industry, into the community, so that there could be a harmonious, peaceful coexistence between the two. And frankly, the revenue that's being generated at the state level, we don't have all of the TT funding that is generated by the counties. But again, it's a tax that's being paid by a hotel guest, whether it's a visitor from the mainland or a local guest, and uh, the natural place for it to be reinvested is into the industry and in areas in the community that are being adversely impacted. Well, I think we saw the concern that you know some lawmakers had about the waivers on the procurement process as these contracts get doled out, and so I think they want they want more scrutiny, they want more responsiveness to the residents' concerns about over tourism. You know, and you folks have launched the uh, destination uh, management plans. And so you're just saying, give us a chance. Give us a chance. Give us the funding. The introduction of destination management action plans is not a substitute for the mission of branding and marketing. It is in addition to that. So it should be funded. It needs to be funded. It's a plan that is laid out on a three-year program of milestones that need to be achieved. Each of the counties had a staggered start date on their three-year plan. And we're entering the third year, like in June of this year through February, right? So it's a critical time. I think that legislators who come from their respective districts understand the implications to their district. It's just, we're in the fourth year of a strategic plan, the third year of a destination management action plan, and this is a time to sustain our focus on getting that work done and making sure that uh, HTA is properly resourced and funded and allow us to continue to get that work done. Now, going back to your earlier point about procurement, the legislature rightfully deserves whatever transparency and accountability that they have. When we lost our procurement exemption back in the summer of 2020, HTA was, frankly, with a procurement exemption, you're required to have a procurement policy. And the procurement policy at HTA fundamentally mirrored what the state procurement policy is. So it's public money, deserves to be procured properly, openly, and in a transparent manner. So we will abide by that. I will tell you, since I've arrived at HTA, we have probably done about 65 procurements. The one that gets the most recognition and exposure is the one having to do with the U.S. marketing contract. And the fact that we went out twice made an award, and that award was challenged. And once it's challenged, HTA or any agency that has a protest loses all control over it. And in our case, the DBED director at that time had the authority and on two occasions decided, ordered us to basically restart. Now, one of the things I want to emphasize, Catherine, is that, well, I will admit that mistakes were made. I made them, frankly. While mistakes were made, The mistakes did not rise 
to a formal violation of the procurement code. Had that happened, he would have received a written notice of violation from either the director of DBED, the state procurement officer, or the office of the attorney general. Right. And at this point, yeah. you know, we're, we're still waiting for, you know, the RFP to get awarded. But given all this, you know, Pilakia that we've, we've watched, you know, unfold over the last year or so, uh, you know, I take you back to the day when we walked Waikiki, when you took over HTA. You talked about how your heart was there to help lead this agency. What are your thoughts today? Even more committed, even more grateful, even more humbled by the fact that I have the opportunity to do it. We've accomplished a lot. We went through a very difficult time of going from a banner year in 2019 prior to my arrival at HQ. And then having the pandemic hit in March, I stepped in in September of 2020. And so when I look back at the what, 30 months, just short of 30 months that I've been there, I am extremely grateful for the committed staff that I have. HTA as the public component to a private-public partnership, along with the visitor industry and the community, has found its way through the pandemic and during the pandemic made the decision to transform itself into not only a branding agency, but an agency in destination management. That gets overlooked that we were able to achieve that during some of the darkest moments in Hawaii's modern history. I'm extremely proud of where we've been. I'm even more committed to this work today and looking forward to finding a resolution and being directed basically by the outcome of this legislative session. So the next five to 10 days are critical. It is what I know in my heart that the people that are elected to office and myself share one thing in common and that's our love for Hawaii. And if we remain mindful to that, we will find our way into the future. I'm confident of that. That was HTA head John DeFries talking to us this morning about the precarious position the agency is in as we head into the final days of the legislative session where the fates of bills are sealed in the conference committee meetings. Hawaii Convention Center isn't the only structure grappling with a leaky roof. Two historic buildings are also on the list. Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair joins us to talk about it. Hi, Chad. Hi, Catherine. So, yeah, we've got a story today uh, by uh, uh, Kevin Dayton. Right, and he references the Hawaii Convention Center leaks, which, of course, has, has been in the news a lot lately. I think the price tag that people are asking to repair that is $64 million dollars. Well, Kevin's got other buildings that he has learned about that he's reporting on. There's two of them in particular uh, that are historic buildings, and it's water damage, rain, and so forth. Uh, One of the buildings uh, is the King David Kalakaua building. Most of us would know that is – remember, we used to call it the old federal building back in the day. But it's also where the old post office is located, but there are – other government offices in that building, the Department of Commerce, Commerce and Consumer Affairs. Well, the problem there is that with these uh, leaks from the, the roofs and, and, and other areas, over the last 10 years, the price tag just alone on 
that building, King David Kalakaua Building, is $20 million. But, Catherine, that's not all. <laughs> there is also a problem with the number one capital building. Most of us would call that the Hemeter Building, right? Right. And that's that's located at the corner of Richards and Hotel Street. And their main problem is these leaky uh, downspouts, right, which are supposed to direct uh, rainwater away. But the top two floors, and it's a five-story building, are so badly damaged that the estimate right now is uh, another just millions of dollars. And by the way, the folks that work out of that building, that includes the Hawaii State Art Museum and also DBED, the Department of Business, Economic Development and Tourism. Yeah, so lots of problems, and these are not new problems. And yeah, well, one uh, tends to wonder, you know, why just why can't we just get it fixed? Uh, why don't we just wait until it gets worse? You know, uh, Kevin actually talked to Mike McCartney, who up until, uh, you know, the EG administration left was the DBED director. And, and he says, you know, staff actually puts a trash can down next to the elevator on the fifth floor to catch those leaks, those dripping, that dripping water. That's how, how uh, the kind of things that they had to resort to. Uh, he says there is a concern about mold uh, in the ceiling tiles. The one good thing, the saving grace that McCartney said was, at least they can open the windows there at number one capital <laughs> because that helps air things out. They're now looking for uh, – there is a $5 million contract that was awarded in January just for that fifth floor work. But DBED also wants another $660,000 because they've got to move things around. They've got to get new furnishings because of all the damage from the water. Yeah, I mean, you know, nothing new, right? We've had uh, leaky roofs at the palace, leaky roofs at the not leaky roofs. Well, actually, I take that back. We've had, we the Capitol had some. Well, the Capitol. No, you're mm-hmm. absolutely right, and the problem there is long standing because of the ponds, right? The ponds mm-hmm. that are on either side. I was just at, I'm at the Capitol a lot these days, and no, you know how dark it is down there. Well, at least they have some lights that are <laughs> up, some spotlights because they need that in order to do that work. That work uh, is continuing. It is very costly. I think it's about $33 million to repair the leaks from the pools down into the parking garage. Anybody who knows about the Capitol, that's where you park your cars. But it's not just that. Um, There are bills in conference committee uh, to address this backlog. You know, we've got this big budget surplus right now. House and Senate folks are saying maybe we ought to use that surplus. The last I checked, it was about $2 billion to use that money to help pay for this maintenance statewide. Yeah. Otherwise, this is going to cost us more down the road. But thanks so much, Chad. Sure. (laughs) We've been talking with Honolulu Civil Beat's editor, Chad Blair, for our reality check. And you can read Kevin Dayton's story at civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company serving the island since 2005, committed to providing personal service to each customer, featuring a locally-based customer care team. Learn more at Mobi.com. You know, next week marks the 200th anniversary of the arrival of the second wave of American Protestant missionaries in Hawaii. Twelve companies total made their way from New England to Hawaii between 1820 and 1848. They are credited with several lasting positive impacts on our islands, but many Hawaiians still blame the missionaries for influencing the ban of their native language and cultural traditions like hula in the late 1800s. 
The Hawaiian Mission Houses Historic Site and Archives on Oahu seeks to foster a greater understanding of the missionaries' impact on Hawaii history. The Conversations Muscle Subiano talked with the museum's executive director, Aaron Shapiro. Can you talk about the second company of missionaries, where they, where they came from when they arrived in Hawaii? So they sailed from New Haven, Connecticut. So the majority of missionaries from the second company were located on the east coast of the United States. And they set a sail aboard the ship, the Thames, on November 20th, 1822. And they did arrive, or at least sighted Hawaii on April 24th, arriving in Honolulu on April 27th, 1823, after a voyage of 158 days, which personally is hard to imagine. Um, And they did testify that they arrived with great harmony, many unsolicited favors from the captain. So it was a good-sized group of people. You had Reverend Artemis Bishop, a medical doctor who traveled to the islands, and his wife, Elizabeth as well as Joseph and Martha Goodrich. They were responsible for expanding the mission actually into Hilo, as well as James and Louisa Eli. So James Eli is actually credited for the first translation, or I'm sorry, the translation of the first storybook that was printed in the Hawaiian language. And then you also had Levi Chamberlain, who was the secular agent for the mission. And the Chamberlain House, which is one of the historic houses on site, was his home actually. And we use it now for our tours and for educational purposes as well. And then you also had Reverend William and Clarissa Richard. And then Clarissa Richards and her husband William are also notable because they're the ones who founded the Lahaina Mission in Maui at the request of Queen Keopulani. So they went over there, and that is where Betsy Stockton comes into play as well, the freed slave who founded the first school four commoners on Maui. So she, along with the Richards and Reverend Charles and Harriet Stewart, traveled over to Maui to form the mission on that island. Yeah, I couldn't imagine spending that much time at sea either. And (laughs) and so I feel like missionaries probably get a bad rap with a lot of people here in Hawaii. I grew up around many local people who have hard feelings against the American missionaries. But if one can set aside that animosity and look at history objectively and accurately, I mm-hmm. feel like there are also very many positive contributions that were made by the missionaries. Can you talk about a few of the biggest contributions? The missionaries do get a bad rap, and I think it's unfortunate because they did have so many positive, long-lasting contributions that the Hawaiian elite really you know, collaborated with them on. So it was truly a collaborative relationship. Yes, the missionaries did come to spread the messages of Christianity, but also it's important to keep in mind that they were really the most educated group in America at the time. And so when they arrived here, they actually found that the interest was truly in education. So, you know, credit is certainly due to Queen Ka'ahumanu, who was really a major proponent of bringing, you know, reading and writing to the islands and made, you know, a huge effort to commit to teaching, you know, the people of Hawaii to read and to write. And I think that's where it gets, you know, lost. And it's something that really needs to be focused on was that it was a collaborative relationship where the missionaries came and thought, wonderful. Okay, there is this appetite to learn the written word, to capture the alphabet. So they really worked in a co-learning type of situation to spread literacy throughout the islands, creating the very first written Hawaiian alphabet and actually the first 
printed material on the Hawaiian Islands was a language primer meant to instruct the Hawaiian people in this newly recorded alphabet. And then the first bound book was actually a musical book. It was a sound book. Or I'm sorry, it was a songbook. And so that also speaks to this, you know, collaborative effort towards music and what was created as a result of the missionaries bringing their hymns and their songs and how that really worked with the type of music that the Hawaiian people were using and doing. And so when you're looking and thinking about these contributions, they're incredibly long lasting and they really did create a very literate society. I mean, the statistics are actually staggering. By 1853, an estimated 75% of all people in the Hawaiian kingdom over the age of 16 were literate. And by 1870, 80% were literate in Hawaiian English or a European language, which made Hawaii one of the most literate nations in the world at the time, actually more literate than statistically than the continent. And also, I just like to point this out, the missionaries were really here on mission for a very specific period of time. It ended in 1848. So it was before a lot of the laws were put into effect. They weren't part of that. They were really here in that educational capacity and formed long-lasting relationships and were really welcomed into society in that capacity. And one missionary that I learned about recently is is Betsy Stockton. You touched on her a little bit earlier. I think she's a fascinating story. I know she was born into slavery in New Jersey. She came to Mm -hmm. Hawaii and taught at the first school for common people, which I'm going to assume that schools before then were primarily for ali'i. And she also trained native Hawaiian teachers. Can you talk a little bit more about what made Betsy so impactful here? Sure. I mean, her story truly is phenomenal. I mean, she actually taught herself to read and write and was declared free at the age of 20. So she grew up in the household of Reverend Ashville Green, who later went on to be the president of Princeton College. So she was a slave in an educated household and really took it upon herself to learn to read and write. So obviously a very independent, you know, strong-willed person. She was very interested in selflessly educating the people. I mean, she really felt a calling and a drive to educate and to spread the ability to read and write because it was something that she herself saw denied to so many of her fellow slaves. And you also touched on the missionaries' influence on music here. Do we hear some of that still today? We absolutely do. I mean, Hawaii Aloha uh, was actually a missionary written song, which I think a lot of people aren't actually aware of. But the missionaries came over with written hymns. So they had written music, which was not something that the Hawaiian culture had. They really shared their style of hymns, and it was obviously a huge part of just their day-to-day life. The Hawaiians really took to it. And like I said, obviously, they had their own culture of music, but that's where that collaborative element really comes in. You know, both groups really came together and both musical styles were altered to create this new style of music that, you know, we know in contemporary society is Hawaiian music. You know, old stories sometimes die hard. And many times Mm -hmm. these hard feelings that some locals have against missionaries, they get passed down through the generations. What would you say to someone who harbors these feelings to change their understanding of missionaries? I'd say come on site, you know, come here, let's have the dialogue, let's talk about it. And that that's really my view plan. Let's talk about it. You know, I think open communication, not just here in this situation, but in life in general, is how you work through things. For me as director of the institution, I want to have those difficult conversations and invite people in to express their thoughts and feelings and to hopefully, you know, share with them our 
information as well and say, you know, here's what was up and, you know, educate. So as an institution, our goal is really to be accessible, inclusive, and to be open to everybody. You know, we're here in spirit of the original missionaries to also be educators, to be here for the community, to serve in that capacity. And so that's something that I would just really reiterate and underline. We're here. We're open to it. Come on over. Come talk to us. Thank you so much, Aaron, for your time. Thanks so much, Russell. I appreciate it. That was Hawaiian Missions House's Executive Director Aaron Shapiro talking with HPR's Russell Subiono. Uh, the Bicentennial Celebration runs from April 25th to 28th on Oahu and via Zoom and from uh, May 4th to May 7th on Maui. We'll have a link to more information on the conversation page of our website later today. Well, Elixir G is the latest Hawaii product to go from farm to table. Bill Tokenton shared the story behind this latest craft concoction and what he calls his ginger adventure. It took him from a bar in Southern California to the fields of Hamakua. I was helping out in various restaurants in Los Angeles, and this one group lost their lease, and they moved to a new location, and they inherited a liquor license that they had never had before. And they said, Bill, can you get the bar up and going? And I said, sure. And they had this ginger stuff, and they were making a ginger ale, ginger soda with it. I took it and made a margarita with it, and it was very, very successful. So I turned to the owners, and I said, you guys should look into bottling this. And they said an infamous thing. They said, no, that's not what we do. We're in the restaurant business. And I remembered a story like that from the tech world, where a long time ago, some guys in the basement of Xerox invented the mouse. And they took it to their bosses and said, look at this neat way we made to, in, to work a computer. And the bosses said, yeah, that's really great, but that's not what we do. We make copiers. And Stephen Jobs saw it down there and Apple bloomed. So when they said no, I said, okay, if you're not going to do it, I will. And so how did you decide to jump into Big Island Ginger? I started researching ginger, started learning everything I could about ginger, the science of it, the growing it, what was coming from some countries, other countries. And it took a little while, but in a few months, I learned that Hawaii grows the best ginger in the world and that the great ginger adventure was born. And so, you know, I happened to pick up a bottle from my neighborhood store and was surprised. I mean, it really does put a zing in your cocktail. Well, it's the real thing. So many other ginger ale, ginger beer products are using an artificial flavoring that people are really, really surprised when they come across real ginger. So it's very sad that so many fake ginger products are out there when ginger is good for you. And, you know, when you hear the word elixir, you think of, you know, some magic potion or a tonic that's, uh, that's good for you. It's true. It's true. And if you put it into your margarita and have a gingerita, it will be a magic potion. Well, I know that a new trend nowadays is uh, non-alcoholic cocktails or mocktails. Correct. And so I guess this is, you know, one way you could, I guess, spice up your, your drink. That's true. We did just get requests from a 
restaurant, I think it was Shorefire, and they are doing a special event and wanted to offer a mocktail. So they were looking for Elixirgy to do part of that. So it definitely comes up, and it's coming up more and more. Tell us about what the response has been like. I mean, how long have you been uh, been in business? Been in business over 10 years. It's always hard to be the little guy. Of course, you look at it, and we're a non-alcohol mixer, but at the same time, we're competing against all of the giants, the Grey Goose and Cuervo and Jim Beam, all of them. So it is difficult to get people to listen to you, to hear your voice and what you have to say. But then again, you can get innovative and you can find ways to do things that they cannot and use those to your advantage. One thing there was that they are restricted to promotions that they can do and they are restricted to certain distributors. Whereas we can put our non-alcohol product into almost any distributor. And Elixir G went into over 400 restaurants on the mainland. And it went through a Cisco, U.S. Foods. There are a number of large distributors like that. And uh, it has always worked very well. Although in Hawaii, we are with uh, Southern Wine and Spirits. I just wonder about being able to fill the demand. I mean, are there enough ginger growers out there to be able to supply you with product? Well, that's always an issue. We did start growing our own on the Big Island. That was before COVID, and that worked out very well. So it's really even more beneficial to grow our own ginger. And then when it's ready, we harvest it and ship it over and bottle it You know, when everything is all lined up. The uh, ginger gets sent to a bottling plant. It's here in Los Angeles, and they prep it, put it through the machinery. There are only three ingredients in Elixir G ginger. It's fresh ginger, lemon juice, and cane sugar, and that's all that's in it. No preservatives, no additives, none of that, and it holds up very well. Ginger's a natural preservative. So, yes, it gets all processed here in Los Angeles, and we are now looking at a place on Oahu, where we might be able to do some bottling and keep everything right there in Hawaii. I was looking at some of the comments of some of your customers, and people are not just using it in drinks, but they're using it to cook with. There is a little of that. Yes, we've seen that come up now and then. Yeah, so there's more fun than just drinks. (laughs) Well, so what's on tap for Elixir G? What else is uh, down the road? The big push now is the gingeritas. We got started on that a long time ago. And then the Moscow Mule came into fashion, and we couldn't get anybody to really think or do anything else with ginger. They would repeat over and over again, the people want mules, the people want mules. Don't don't talk to me about anything else. When actually, the gingerita is the better drink. Gingerita is what's really, really magical. In what way? So that one, it just has an incredibly powerful ginger flavor which is not like anything else. Even even the ginger beer and the Moscow Mule, that all, it, it fades because it's kind of diluted. But the gingerita is the one that makes people go, wow. And that's exciting. Yeah. And that takes you back to your story about working in the bar or in the restaurant. It's true. It's, it's true. And we did, we trademarked the name gingerita. Well, there you go. Which is a lot of fun. And so how are you getting the word out? Ah, we just got a little bit of a promotion started with the Hawaii Restaurant Association. They're putting out some information about the gingerita promotion for the month of May, where we are giving a dollar for every gingerita sold to the Hawaii Food Bank. 
then there's also a PR firm that has sent out a, a huge list of restaurants with some information about how to get Elixir G, the distributor, and we can even send a, a free bottle to restaurants if they contact us. And so what's what exactly is in a gingerita? <laughs> a gingerita is almost exactly like a margarita. So it's tequila and sour mix and Elixir G ginger. Some people like to use fresh lime juice, and that works too. Blended works best. Uh-huh. Interesting. Other places are not set up for that, and they do it on the rocks. What else do you think we ought to know about this Elixir G? It's more creative than the other things in the beverage world, and that gets me excited. I look at the other products, and there's 35 different kinds of vodka. They're all almost exactly the same. And the same thing with the gin and some of the other stuff. So much of it is so similar that it's really, really hard to to separate yourself from them if you're one of those products. But having something so different is really, really exciting. And there's, of course, other things that we can do with it. The creativity can go on and on. When we are done bottling, we have about 3,000 pounds of ginger pulp left over. And we can make other products out of that. We've already started making ginger soap. We just dried out the pulp, ground it up, and blended it into soap. It's a lot of fun to give that away when people order a bottle. Wow. And so you have this then facility uh, on the Big Island. I don't know. Do you do tours at all or what? Oh, (laughs) well, one thing that's interesting and also difficult is a regular ginger farmer might grow an acre or five acres, but after it is harvested, he will move to new acres, new fresh ground every time. The ginger does take a lot out of the soil, and it doesn't grow as well a second time. Now, one of the things we're starting with is what we can do to replenish the soil. And there are certain things you can grow and then mulch it into the soil and help bring the soil back to life. And there's sometimes farmers will follow it up by planting turmeric or sweet potatoes, and they can get a second crop before they start to really invigorate the soil again. So about eight or nine years later, they'll come back to the acre where they first grew ginger. Okay, but that's the challenge for you then, is that as a grower, you can't just keep it in ginger the whole time? That's right. You can't just do the same acre over and over and over again. No, you have to keep moving. That was Bill Tocantins of Perfect Beverage and the ginger story of Elixir G, sold only at Tamura's at the moment. For the month of May, as he mentioned, for every gingerita you order at your favorite Hawaii restaurant or bar, a dollar will be set aside for the Hawaii Food Bank. Look for it at your favorite watering hole. 